Hello and welcome to Ohio Folklore. I'm your host, Melissa Davies. I can't tell you how happy I am to be back to producing episodes on Ohio's most legendary stories. Like most of us, I've been consumed with new life circumstances that stem from the COVID-19 crisis. Sometimes it feels like we're all living some tragic story in itself. We're all learning how to connect with others from a distance. We've turned our lives upside down just to help stop the spread of this awful virus. It's the least we can do to help the most vulnerable among us. I hope and pray that you are all well, loved, and at peace in these strange times. Now, let's get on with the story. A few listeners have requested that I cover one particular legend from Ohio's most northeastern corner. As is true for many of the stories I cover, I'd never before heard of it. That's part of what I enjoy most about making these episodes, discovering an eerie part of Ohio's history that somehow passed me by, until now. So I'd like to take the time to pass my good fortune along to you. Sit back, relax, and venture with me back in time to an icy, blustery December night in 1876. I'm talking about the Ashtabula train disaster. Late one evening, outside Ashtabula, in darkness, in the middle of a blizzard bringing 20 inches of snow, an iron trestle collapsed under the weight of a passenger train. The lead engine made it safely across, but the second engine and its trailing 11 passenger cars plummeted 70 feet to the Ashtabula River below, taking all of about 160 passengers and crew along with it. The wreckage exploded in flames, largely due to the oil lamps and stoves that were used in the train's passenger cars. Many who weren't killed on impact were burned alive or were thrown into icy waters. In all, 92 people would lose their lives. At the time it happened, it was the worst train accident in U.S. history. Today, you can find a historical marker near the site that outlines the horrible event. A nearby cemetery, Chestnut Grove Cemetery, contains a monument to dozens of victims. Their remains were so badly mutilated that they were never identified. Most locals know the story, in part due to the enduring reminder that these monuments provide. However, like most stories of this size and age, they become distant from us. They become flat and factual. We lose touch of the reality of what living through something like this must have felt like. Lucky for us, I've found a personal account of the saga from one couple who survived it. Johnson Orburn and his wife Mary, a couple in their 40s, had just boarded the Lakeshore and Southern Michigan Railway train from Ashtabula that night. They were full of heady anticipation. Farmers by trade, they had just purchased a farm in Michigan's Saginaw County. Their hard work toiling in local fields had finally provided a nest egg large enough to start their own operation. As the train pulled out of the station, Mary Orburn unwrapped the sandwich she packed and began eating. Her husband took a seat under the oil lamp so that he'd have enough light to read his copy of the Ashtabula Weekly Telegraph. Johnson had difficulties focusing on the articles he was reading. 
His excitement at their long-awaited journey preoccupied him. He couldn't wait for the spring planting season, when he would be sowing his own fields. He'd been waiting all his life for this kind of independence, and now he had all but gotten it. They would soon arrive. These were his thoughts when he felt the first sudden jerk below his feet. The car jostled violently. It felt, he would later recall, like one of the wheels had come off the tracks. One corner of the car seemed to sag more than the others. In an instant, he dropped his paper and grabbed hold of the back of the seat in front of him. Then, inexplicably, the whole car and its contents seemed to lift upward. Undoubtedly, this was from the freefall that ensued when the bridge below them gave way. Although, Johnson didn't have the sensation of falling. It felt more like they were climbing up a steep hill. Women shrieked. One of them was Johnson's wife. In a second, he managed to throw an arm around her. We must have derailed and are crashing through a field, he yelled. The rear end of the car struck the shallow riverbed first, bursting it into shards of kindling, which went flying forward, pelting everyone inside. One large piece of debris landed on Johnson and pinned his left leg to the floor. His wife had been thrown against the side of the car when two seats dislodged and held her there. Remarkably, with some wriggling, she was able to free herself. Although it took only seconds, the fall and the impact seemed to play out in slow motion. When the car finally came to rest, Johnson cried out to his wife, Mary, are you alive? She yelled back immediately. She didn't think she was hurt as far as she could tell. Hysteria and confusion swept over the surviving passengers, and the Orburns fought hard not to get caught up in it. One end of the car was filling rapidly with the frigid waters of the Ashtabula River. The other end had ignited and hungry flames were spreading quickly. On freeing herself, Mary set to work on her husband. His leg had been bent awkwardly around a piece of iron that was used to secure the seats to the floor. She worked in desperation to free him as smoke filled the car. Soon, flames grew within feet of them. Mary, take hold of my foot, bend my leg toward you with all your might and see if you can break it. Johnson yelled over the terrified screams of those engulfed in flames. Mary grabbed his foot to pull just as he had told her. That's when the car made one last sudden lurch to the side, upturning the wreckage that had pinned him. It was enough of a movement for him to extract himself. By the time the couple exited out a gaping hole in the wall, Mary's dress was on fire. She managed to douse it in the frigid waters. They emptied out from one hellish scene into another. They had escaped a conflagration and stumbled into a blizzard, literally. Somehow, they made their way onto the snow-covered bank of the river and began scouring up through knee-deep snow toward higher ground. All the while, the shrieks of those less fortunate souls, the ones for whom no refuge would come, could be heard echoing off the banks. Of everything they faced that awful night, the memory of those screams of agony were the most haunting. Johnson and Mary tread onward like ghosts unto themselves, they tread past onlookers, past members of the local fire brigade, who stood, watching the wreckage burn. They'd been given orders by their chief not to fight the blaze. 
but to assist those who are able to make it out on their own. The icy waters proved too swift and dangerous to allow a rescue. Not knowing what else to do, and grateful to have escaped with no real physical harm, Johnson and Mary tread onward into town. They were among the first passengers to be taken in at a hotel where they sat dazed and traumatized with the other survivors. It's only then that Johnson told Mary what his plan had been. Were she not able to break his leg and he remained pinned in the wreckage, he would have told her to leave to save herself. Then he would have removed a knife he had kept in his right pocket and attempted suicide before the flames got him. All this time, the hellish scene played on relentlessly. Twisted I-beams, an upturned locomotive, and countless dead and dying all became entangled in one gigantic fireball. Accounts gathered from both survivors and onlookers provided additional insight into the horrors that night. The seismic crash of the accident was heard by those more than a mile from the site. On seeing the flames and smoke, locals ran with ropes and buckets. Only victims that were strewn outside the wreckage could be helped. Not even the trained fire brigade attempted to reach those further in. This point would later be criticized by others who weren't there. Others who couldn't possibly understand that walking into the blazing wreckage would have meant certain death. Many of those who were pulled to the snowy banks were fatally injured. Their only grace was to be spared a death from flames. Many who were later interviewed by newspaper reporters spoke of the piercing shrieks of those who were burned alive. They spoke of their own powerlessness to save them and the screams which still haunted their dreams. One survivor spoke of watching the two gentlemen he had just been playing cards with crushed to death before his own eyes. Another spoke of his desperate efforts to reach a screaming infant held out to him by her mother as she was wedged in a mass of timbers. The man was driven back when the flames engulfed them both at the last minute. These are only a few of the untold stories of innocent souls lost in great agony, matched only by the agony of those who were helpless to save them. The fire only died after consuming everything but the twisted iron beams and the mangled engine itself. What remained was a smoldering, tangled mess. Dozens of charred bodies were found among the wreckage, most burned beyond recognition. Many other bodies were burned to ashes in the intense heat of the conflagration. A nearby freight depot became a repository of sorts for corpses and other bits of human remains. The search for bodies went through mid-January, as the painstaking cleanup process wore on. Locals from town and employees of the railroad dug at the wreck with small tools and sometimes their bare hands. Some found diaries, half-charred train tickets, and pieces of jewelry. It was estimated that the remains of about 36 people were brought to the freight depot. Many family members of those known to be on the train that fateful night were desperate for some evidence of their deceased loved ones. They were permitted to view the corpses in hopes of a positive identification. For those corpses that remained unidentified, which numbered about 19, numbers were placed on boxes. And when the efforts to recover bodily remains finally ceased, a mass funeral was slated for January 19th, 
1877. The victims of the Ashtabula train disaster would be interred in nearby Chestnut Grove Cemetery. And it's here that I'd like to take a moment to talk about the ghostly tales of broken and traumatized spirits that have surrounded this legend for nearly 143 years. A temporary replacement bridge was quickly constructed within 20 days after the disaster. In their hurried work, construction workers claimed to hear crashing sounds and haunting screams echoing off the surface of the water. Others would claim to see strange spheres of light hover above the new bridge as it was being built. And even weeks later, after victims were buried in nearby Chestnut Grove Cemetery, visitors to the cemetery claimed to have had ghostly encounters with the unfortunate souls. One common claim was to spot spectral figures carrying carpet bags and wearing winter clothing, wandering from tombstone to tombstone as though confused. Some could hear disembodied voices, mournful and wailing. Yet the most notorious paranormal claim associated with the incident pertains to the sighting of one spirit in particular, the ghost of Charles Collins. At the end of his life, this man would become unfairly targeted for causing the accident. He was the chief engineer of bridges for the railroad company. He was first ordered to draw up blueprints for an all-iron truss design. He refused, citing catastrophic flaws in the plans. He told them it would collapse. His protests weren't enough to stop the project. The original designer, a man named Amasa Stone, completed the plans himself, and the Lakeshore and Michigan Southern Railway gave the green light for construction to begin. A coroner's investigation of the disaster lasted over two months. It would eventually conclude that the all-iron truss bridge was not appropriate for such a wide gap and that the braces could not withstand repeated loads of this size. And not only that, a faulty design was combined with shoddy construction. Parts were too short, too thin, and improperly connected to one another. Lastly, Bridge inspectors did not perform their jobs adequately. They should have noted problems with the structural pieces becoming loose over time. While Charles Collins did not design or construct the bridge, he was in charge of its inspections in the years from its creation to its destruction. The pain of guilt which he carried publicly was known to many. He seemed to accept much blame, a heavy burden which most believe ultimately resulted in his death. The official story of Charles Collins' death at the time was that of suicide by gunshot to the head. A belated obituary found in his hometown newspaper, the Ashtabula Weekly Telegraph, explained thusly, It lauded Collins as an example of strength and intellect in the community. It detailed his resume as an engineer. He'd been taught at the revered Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute in New York. Friends and employees viewed him as responsible, dutiful, and kind. Collins' engineering feats throughout New England caught the admiration of Ohio railway companies. They sought him and eventually convinced him to work in their employ. He sailed through the ranks, landing a position as chief engineer in short order. It was during this time that he met and fell in love with an Ashtabula woman, 
Miss Mary Harmon. The couple would marry in 1856 and take up residence there in Ashtabula. Collins' successes in career and life came to a screeching halt on December 29, 1876, that fateful night of the disaster. Word had it that he had hurried himself to the scene as soon as he'd heard about it. He worked alongside others who attempted to find the remains of those who perished. He worked day and night, refusing food and rest, his fervor fueled by the searing pain of guilt. Even though he did not design the bridge nor build it, he was charged with its inspections since its completion in 1863. What had he missed? What might he have prevented with a closer look? It was this painful hindsight that was believed to cause him unbearable pain, the kind of which can lead to one's own demise. That's why when his body was found in a rented room, a gunshot wound to his temple, all assumed Collins had chosen to end his own misery. It was more than a believable premise, given how seriously Collins was known to take his responsibilities. Anyone who knew him knew the self-induced torture that plagued every day of his life. It was no wonder he needed an escape from the burden of blame he cast upon himself. But then, there's more to the story. Records which pertain to the official investigation of Collins' death remain sealed for no known reason. They would be eventually destroyed during a flood in the 1970s, and their conclusions lost to the ages. But then, perhaps not. Records from two autopsies of Collins' body were unearthed. Although they were not released at the time, historians have discovered details in recent years, as recent as 2011, that paint a very different picture. Collins' widow, Mary Collins, believed her husband was murdered. She was joined in this belief by several of his friends and colleagues, who asserted that officials from the Lakeshore and Southern Michigan Railway Company feared what Collins might say in further testimony to the Legislative Committee in Cleveland. As it was, Collins' death occurred on the evening of his first day of testimony. He had already testified that the design was nothing short of experimental, that he had never known of another bridge built only of iron and in this way. It was believed that he was getting too close to telling the truth, that the company was well aware of design flaws that he had alerted them to. Doubts as to the suicide explanation grew when details of the crime scene were revealed. Collins' body had been lying peacefully and naturally upon the bed, as though someone had positioned him there. The sheets were undisturbed. Had Collins shot himself in the head, his body would have surely been slumped over in some unnatural position. And more to the point, the results of the two autopsies found clear indications of blunt force trauma to the head, indicating that he had been struck unconscious before the fatal gunshot. It was reported that the bruise on the head could have been caused by a broken towel rack that had been discovered in the adjacent bathroom. Presumably, Collins' assailant had used the blunt object to strike him unconscious before shooting him dead. Then he was lain neatly on the bed, with the gun placed in his own hand, staging the scene as a suicide. The theory went that the railway company feared further liability, and they knew Collins had opposed the bridge design and construction from the start. 
His public grief and feelings of guilt lent toward a credible motivation for suicide. Was Charles Collins murdered by railway officials or someone hired by them in order to protect the company? If ever a tortured soul had a reason to roam the earth in search of some resolution, it would be this. Perhaps the mournful spirit seen weeping in Chestnut Grove Cemetery is indeed Charles Collins. Perhaps he still believes himself responsible. Perhaps he longs for the full truth to come forward. Perhaps it's a little of both. If only we could ask him. If only he could tell us what he knows. Believe it or not, I have had the incredible good luck to connect with two people who believe they may have had an encounter with the spirit of Charles Collins himself. Nadine and John Smith are a couple who've taken up paranormal investigating as a hobby. These Toledoans enjoy traveling to unique locations at the spur of the moment, just to see what they can find. One day, not long ago, they decided to stop at the Chestnut Grove Cemetery on their way home from Pennsylvania. They read up on the story on the train disaster along the way. Neither of them knew what laid in store for them as they approached the large Gothic structure that is Charles Collins' mausoleum. Let's hear the story in their own words. That's how I found this place. Looking for odd roadside things, and this popped up, so I started reading about it, and we were on our way back from Pennsylvania, and I asked him if we could stop off, and we did, and that's how we kind of stumbled across it. How neat that was just like a natural kind of, hey, let's go do this spontaneous thing. Yes. And so, I mean, you were doing a little bit of reading about it online, but it wasn't anything that you planned out in advance, and so you just kind of came to it to see what it was about. And were you planning to do any actual ghost hunting when you went there? We did have some equipment with us, and we just, you know, basically took out all the ghost hunting equipment and started wandering around and just started investigating. Um, So for my listeners who've never been to the cemetery, can you kind of set the scene in terms of what it's like to be there and what you see and what you hear when you're there? The cemetery is interesting because the city actually, Astrobula, welcomes ghost hunters. It's one of the few cities that I've seen welcome a ghost hunter, and if you find evidence, they want you to send it to them. Oh, how cool. Yeah, so, I mean, they don't run you off. They actually want people to come in there and to uh, walk around because the story uh, that the city has behind the cemetery is that you'll still see some of the um, resident ghosts They'll be out there wandering around, having picnics, so on and so forth, like they're going about their daily lives. So people have seen, like, full-bodied apparitions, like, walking around doing things, is what you're saying? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and that, that cemetery is actually right next to the gorge, the river gorge thing mm-hmm. fell into. It was probably a half mile away where the train actually went into the gorge, but um, the gorge that, ru- that that train fell into comes right past the cemetery. If you go to the one uh, the one boundary of the cemetery, you can actually look down into the gorge, and it's kind of 
you're kind of wild by it, you know. That makes sense. I had read that some people say when they go there, they can actually hear a train whistle uh, because the, the tracks are still where they were, more or less, and all those years ago. Yeah, they've uh, got new bridges out there and everything, but yeah, there's a train track going across the gorge now, yeah. When you go in, um, you'll see the markers, and the markers are exceptionally old. They're, I mean, there's stuff there from the 1800s. I'm assuming what would have been then uh, probably the Spanish flu, or there's probably victims in there from uh, typhoid and other various things in there. Sure, sure. So is it like, um, you know, any of those really large city uh, cemeteries where there's huge oak trees and, um, like, would you describe it as peaceful or is it eerie or? There's lots of trees. Um, mm-hmm. lots of, there's actually a, a lot of shade in there. Um, when you get closer to the edge of the cemetery where the gorge is, there's less trees. And they have the um, the unmarked graves over there where they buried the poor people. But um, it's very well kept. It's very pretty and very calm. And I think you mentioned that um, you had captured a few audio something um, at first. Is that right? We did. That was my son, my oldest son and I. We were we had walked on over to the Collins Mausoleum, and we were walking around it because we thought we saw something, and we were talking. And we had our recorder going, and we had heard a few things and saw someone there. So he went around one side of the mausoleum, and I went around the other side of the mausoleum. And when we came around, you could see you could see a man leaning against the back of the mausoleum. Huh. Can you try to describe uh, more? about what you saw exactly? Um, it was a gentleman. He looked to be maybe, I guess, uh, 40, 30, kind of somewhere around there, you know, middle-aged. And he was just leaning up against the uh, the mausoleum, and we could see the outline of him, so we could see that he had, like, one foot up against the back of the mausoleum, and he had his arms crossed over his chest. But huh. it's picking out, like, any real, real details, you know, it was really kind of hard to make out, but you could definitely see it was a man. Okay, so you couldn't really tell, like, his what he was wearing or facial features or that kind of thing? N- not not so much, no. Mm-hmm. No. Um, he was wearing, a, you, well, you could tell he was wearing a hat. And it's like he was wearing pants that were, like, tight against him, you know, like something, nothing too baggy or anything. No, he was he was wearing just a normal pair of pants. And, you know, like you could see the outline, and they weren't like knickers or anything like that. And both you and your son could see him at the same time. Yeah, he wouldn't talk to us until we walked away, and and we got a response, and we heard it audibly with our ears, and it was yeah. And, I mean, we just literally heard this male voice behind us go, yeah. Hmm. Was that an answer to your question? Or Yep, it, it was. Do you remember what your question was? 
I remember we were asking him questions at one point about, you know, we told him he didn't have to be there. It wasn't his fault. Yeah, it's just a sad thing, you know. The cemetery itself, it's super active. I mean, when we were there, the stories that you hear of this particular uh, cemetery is that the residents in the cemetery, that they still walk on the grounds, and people have seen them during the day just wandering about. So mm-hmm. it wouldn't surprise me if some of them could have been from the train wreck. I have read accounts where people will see um, people that are, like, carrying carpet bags or, you know, other kinds of what would have been luggage at the time. And then also, like, being in a period dress, um, like winter clothing, especially since it was happened in December. Right. Right. I read the stories that we would go there, and I thought, well, you know, if it's like our other experiences we've had, maybe we'll see something. And we did, but it wasn't like the full-bodied apparition that everybody wants to see. The the man that you saw at the mausoleum that was more, you said, like an outline. It wasn't, uh, you know, a full body. Right. 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 It, mm-hmm. it was unusual. And you weren't able to capture any of that on a photo, right? We tried with a, um, what is it, a cannon we have? Uh, a cannon... Sure shot, or I don't know what it, we, we have a camera that's uh, got like the manual and the digital zoom and everything. And we tried with two different cell phones, and it wasn't there. It just, it, I mean, we could see it with our own eyes right there on the camera. Uh, but when we go to take a picture with the camera while we're standing there talking to this, what we can see as a person, it didn't pick anything up. I would tell anyone who has, is interested in going to investigate a place, go to this place. But when you go, you know, please be respectful of these, these spirits because this is their home to them. They they wander freely about, and I believe that they wander about communicating with each other and act just like they're still alive. Do the research on the history of it. And what happened, it'll really move you. To me, it's a very sacred place. If these spirits are still here, there's there's a reason that they're here. There's something very different about this cemetery. That's all I can say. Any advice you would have for any of my listeners that are thinking about going? Yeah. Uh, It's it's a very three-dimensional cemetery, and the roads are just basically dirt. And they are on the sides of the hills, basically. Yeah. So you don't want to be sliding off the road and down over stones or something. Yeah. So uh, you could always park at the bottom of the hill and walk up, too, I mean, if it's slippery. So, I mean, it's it's, it's very doable, even if you do have bald tires. Just don't drive up on the hill. Uh, and, and I would say, too, it's fairly easy to set your equipment up because the distance from the Ashtabula train wreck memorial and the uh, mausoleum are really not that far away from each other. You can see the one from the other, no matter which one you stand at. But I would, I would also say, too, you know, 
even if all you do is stop and get like a $3 arrangement of flowers, you know, take something to lay on that memorial to celebrate the lives of those people because the way they died was just tragic. And I think right. that paying respect to them is really important. You, you know, a lot of times these, uh, on these ghost hunting shows, they have all this fancy equipment and all this stuff that, that people use in their ghost hunting. Um, sometimes your person is, is a very powerful tool. If you go there, you read tombstones, you read the family names, you look at who's there and when they died, and you get a feel for the dynamics of that family, and it will move you, and it kind of opens you up to the presence that's there. That's a really good point. I think sometimes we overlook um, just our ability to sense what's around us, um, especially if you're paying attention to things. So whether you're a believer in ghosts, a skeptic, or you just haven't quite decided yet, the Chestnut Grove Cemetery in Ashtabula, Ohio, holds something special for all visitors. It holds tribute to the victims of one Ohio tragedy that should never be forgotten. As I stated earlier, at the time, this accident was the worst single train disaster in all U.S. history. In the months and years that followed, many lessons would be learned. Survivors had been cared for in the individual homes of Ashtabulans simply because no other options were available. This led to the establishment of the area's first hospital, the entity which still serves residents there today. In addition, cast iron was banned for civil engineering projects that involved load-bearing structures due to a collapse risk. Lamps and heating stoves used in passenger cars were converted to steam, lending a much lower fire risk than conventional oil or coal devices. And a federal system for investigating rail accidents was established, allowing states to learn from one another about how to prevent such tragedies. And that's the strange thing about tragedies. If you look deep enough and wait long enough, something good arises from them. Our world has been made a little safer as the result of this incident, and we benefit from these measures yet today. So if you're so inclined to visit Chestnut Grove Cemetery, bring a good pair of walking shoes, bring a respectful state of mind, but most of all, bring a sense of gratitude for those that have gone before us and made our own paths just a little less dangerous. And if you happen to spot something out of the ordinary, don't panic and don't gawk. Instead, offer a little prayer of thanks and wishes for peace for the souls who still linger there. This concludes today's episode on the Ashtabula train disaster. I hope you've enjoyed it. If so, please rate, review, and subscribe to Ohio Folklore on your chosen podcast platform. You can find Ohio Folklore at ohiofolklore.com and on Facebook. And as always, keep wondering.